peace of Christ be with you. As we settle into this place, give yourselves the gift of about three deep breaths that you might invite the presence of the Spirit into this sacred place. Friends, let us worship in beloved community. Please rise in body or spirit for the call to worship. Christ, you are the image of the invisible God. In you, all things hold together. You may be seated. I want to welcome you here to Westminster. It is good to be here with you today. It's good to be worshiping together. If you're visiting with us, a special welcome to you this morning. I do invite you after worship to our garden area for coffee, tea, and snacks, and most importantly, a chance to talk to each other, get to know each other a little better. I invite you now to join me in the community prayer. Let us pray. God, in moments of great division, it is easy to seek unity at all costs. However, not all costs are worth bearing. Injustice, destructiveness, deceptiveness, these are not the tools of true unity, true oneness, true purity. Forgive us when we have consciously or subconsciously merely chosen the path resistance because we fear the cost of doing what's right. Grant us the spiritual and moral clarity to know when and how to make difficult choices in our lives. Amen. 
Our prayers continue in quiet. Amen. Friends, hear the good news. God's compassion and love and forgiveness continually call us back into relationship with God. We are now empowered to love and forgive just as we have been loved and forgiven. Thanks be to God. Amen. And now I want to invite you forward if you have a birthday in August or maybe if you missed a birthday blessing in a previous month. Well, it's wonderful to have you up here and before your congregation. This month's poem is by the great Sufi poet Rumi. And this is what he says. It's called The Guest House. This human being, I always get that backwards, this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. May you this year make a daily practice befriending what comes to the door of your soul that you might allow it to become companion and even teacher. Amen and happy birthday. All right, there's a time for a little discovery with Jeff, so come on down if you are young or young at heart. <laughs> yeah. Well, good morning. Thank you. There you go. Watch out. Don't you pull that out. Okay. Yes, it works. It works. So... I have to tell you, one of my favorite things to do is to cook, and maybe that's because one of my favorite things to do is to eat, and I know if I eat, I know if I cook, then that means I'll get to eat. (laughs) Now, there are a lot of parts to making a dinner. There's vegetables, there's the main course, there's oftentimes a starch, such as potatoes, and there's dessert drinks, appetizer. What is your favorite part of dinner? Dessert? Dessert? 
Wow, yeah. Everybody loves dessert. And now, what are the rules here? So in our home, we say you have to eat you know, everything that's on your plate in order to get dessert. Does that, raise your hand if that's your home. You have to eat everything to get dessert. Yeah, that's pretty good. How many of you have to eat half? And how many of you, your parents have just given up and said, eat dessert? Yeah, yeah, Steve? Yeah, yeah, just, we don't care anymore, just eat dessert. It's hard. It's hard to wait for dessert. You know it's there. There's cake. There's cookies. There's all the sweet things that you want. Ice cream. And you think, do I really have to eat all the spinach to get ice cream? Do I really have to eat all of this to get it? And yeah, those are the rules. Those are the rules. You got to wait. And sometimes we get caught with our hand in the cookie jar. We just, sometimes we can't wait. And we break the rules and we're not patient. Do you know that's something we have been doing, that people have been doing for hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years? If you ever put your hand in the cookie jar, raise your hand. Look at all those people. Look at them. That's something we've been doing so long. So, what do you think happens in the Bible when people aren't patient and they can't wait for what God has said they're going to get? What do you think happens? I tell you what, if you follow my friend Sophia out that door, you're going to find out. So let's go. Go now in peace. Go now in peace. I'm now going to invite forward Judy Sachs, who has an update for us on our capital campaign and renovation. Good morning. Um, yes, this used to be an update on the capital campaign. Today, it's an update on the renovation project, and it's a good one. I've got good news. I don't have a yellow hat. Um, but I wanted to update you and thank you for how you've been supporting this project. I've always known that this is an amazing church community. You show up and you participate. You do things when you're asked and sometimes when you're not asked and you do it with joy. You make a difference in this church and in the wider community. You know that too. But here are some more hard facts that reinforce that. Number one, talking about the renovation effort, we have a dedicated and talented team led by Ron Meserve who've done awesome work. They've done paperwork, they've done physical work, they've done organizational work, they've done design work, they've gone to lots of meetings. Those of you who have done remodeling yourselves know that this is a big deal. And it's an even bigger deal when you're doing it with a church. They've jumped through complicated hoops and they've overcome challenges. They've secured the help of the architect. They've made decisions. And we're moving forward. You're going to start to see action and um, work happening probably in October. But if you didn't notice on your way in this morning, take a look when you go out. Sharon Terrell has gone to the effort of putting up signs to point out where that elevator is going to be, where the new entrance is going to be, where the new bathrooms are going to be, and you'll get a sense of what an improvement we're going to be able to see. You also should take a look on the church website under notes and bolts or on the bulletin board in the back uh, hall there, and you'll be able to be updated. Number two, we are really on the way to breaking ground. We'll have a modular unit for Sunday school out here in the parking area, and the staff is going to be moving temporarily to the Redwoods Presbyterian Church in Larkspur while the uh, construction is happening. Todd Moody has been handling all these logistics really well. 
Joe Cooper and Ann West are working with the architect on interior design, decisions on the kitchen, on color, and that kind of thing. And Ann has volunteered to help with improved landscaping. It's going to be beautiful. Number three, cause to celebrate. Last year, you pledged over $2.5 million toward the much-needed repairs and renovation of our building. Based on the feasibility study done earlier, experts told us that we, Westminster, could expect to raise about $2.25 million. You surpassed those expectations. That's amazing, and that's part of who you are. Number four, this was a three-year commitment that you signed on for last year. Since we closed the campaign in June, we've received over $1.3 million. That's a little over 50% of the pledged amount. Most congregations, these same experts tell us, you usually get 40 to 45% in the first year. Once again, we're ahead of the curve. This is all truly cause to celebrate. Give yourselves a round of applause. So I have a few more details to share. As you've probably heard, we're going to need several hundred thousand dollars more than what we projected to cover soft costs, things that increased in recent years. And if you want more specifics on that, someone from the renovation team, Ron, um, any of these people, and you'll see their names back there, can give you details. This church gave authority for us to get um, a loan from the presbytery, very good rate, to help us with the cash flow during building. People have asked us, what can we do to help going forward? Here are a couple options. One, if you feel that you can make the payment on your pledge early, that would be great. Receiving pledges earlier means fewer dollars that we have to borrow. So ultimately, you, have, you end up saving money. If you didn't get to make a pledge last year, or and you want to do it now, wow, we'd love to hear from you on that one. <laughs> and if you've had a good year and you feel moved to increase your pledge by adding another year to your giving, or by sponsoring a part of what's being done, like the solar project or kitchen appliances. That would be super. Somebody would be thrilled to talk to you about that. This is really an exciting time for Westminster. We have seen so much energy, so much joy. Seeing all these children up here is just wonderful. I'm very proud to be a part of this community. I feel truly blessed, and I know you are too. Thank you. And thank you, Judy, as well. I think that is a great way to start our time of joys and concerns with uh, those wonderful joys. And now I invite you, if any of you have a joy or concern to share, to just raise your hand and let us know. Yeah, Nancy. Absolutely. Continued prayers for Peter Wirtz and Marilyn Wirtz. Peter's undergoing radiation treatment now for his bladder cancer. Um, so continued prayers as he goes through that process. Others? Yeah, Sharon. Yes. Absolutely. Prayers of joy for Jesus Posada, our sexton, just always knowing what needs to be done and, and doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah, Lynn.
Absolutely. So, so two prayers from Lynn. She, uh, Lynn's been working a lot uh, with the people of Pakistan and continued prayers for that work. And then prayers for her daughter, Araya, who's about to have a big test. Absolutely. Others? Oh, yeah. Nancy, yes. Ah. Uh, so guys and has a voice. Oh. <laughs> we also have a choir member who's in the bass section who's had surgery. I didn't ask for permission, but I prayers that he will recover. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Nancy prays for a choir member who recently had surgery. Um, she she was encouraging specifically those of you who might be a bass to join the choir, but I would I, I would expand oh, that. Okay. Yeah. Choir's been on a break this summer, but we'll yeah. be rehearsing soon. If, if you're visiting, that's choir. not the entirety of the choir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've had some wonderful special music this summer that will continue for a couple more weeks. And then on September 8th, our choir will be back with us. Thank you, Nancy. Yeah, Susan. Absolutely. So Susan's daughter is coming into town. Um, the reason being her, one of her very good friends from school's mom recently died in the services today. So prayers for that family. Yes. Barb. So Barb expands on that prayer request. Uh, Christy Herman is a woman who died, a kindergarten teacher at very uh, for many years, so miss, some of you may know her prayers for Christie's family. Yes, others. Yeah, John. Well, we had Nana Camp at my house for uh, the seventh week this summer, so we had Nana Camp for That's a great, interesting. At the first service, we had prayer about grandchildren, too. So Joan just lifts up her uh, granddaughters, who 10 and 12 were visiting, and what a joy it was. Absolutely. Yeah, Tila. Absolutely. Lots of local schools starting this week. So prayers for the students and the teachers, the staff members, as school gets back into session. Yeah. Bev, did I? Yeah. Okay, friend Colin Steele, who is nearing the end of his life. All right, let's take, oh yeah, Kristen. Thank you for that. So Jeffers prayers for kindness and consideration in our community. There was an incident um, at the library recently. Apparently there's some more details in the ARC newspaper about that. But thank you. Prayers for kindness. Absolutely. Let's take just a few moments in quiet, and then I will lead us in the Lord's Prayer. So let's be in prayer together. Gracious God, you hear the prayers of your people, and they're offered today in the name of the one who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we Thank you. 
The first scripture reading is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, through chapter 12, verse 2. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to us. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. But when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. And what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fires, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. This is holy wisdom, holy word. The second reading comes from the 12th chapter of Luke's Gospel, verses 49 to 56. What we hear here is the voice of Jesus, so listen for what he is saying to us today. I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say it is going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? This, too, is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. I was away for just a couple of weeks at the end of July and early August, but it was amazing how much happens. We largely unplugged from the news, and boy, when you plug back in, two mass shootings, three by the time I edited this sermon, if you count the shooting of the police officers in Philadelphia, The ugly countenance of racism showing up again, even in our backyard, showing up. When I left, which now seems like so long ago, I had been captivated by all the programming surrounding the 50th 
anniversary of the Apollo 11 uh, moon landing, uh, which happened. Okay, as long as we can agree on that. And I, re- I remember after hearing one program, thinking to myself, how did they pull that off? I mean, with less computer power than is probably in most pockets here, we launched a piece of metal from the earth, uh, made it to the moon, uh, landed on it, uh, walked around, redocked while two ships were orbiting the moon, and came back it, without missing. I mean, to, to state the obvious, the moon is really far away. And I just found the whole endeavor kind of stunning. And to, to hear the astronauts talk about it took it to another level. I don't know if there was a palpable sense of unity on the Earth, kind of this sort of existential oneness as people watched it. Uh, some say there was and maybe in reflecting upon it, but certainly in hearing them talk about it, it was profound. And as interesting as the moon was, do you know what seemed to uh, capture them the most? It was the view back at Earth, right? That tiny little marble in the sky. And I found myself, hearing this recount, it moved even to tears uh, when they read what was on the, the plaque on the lunar module. And it listed the date and so on and so forth and, and said, uh, we come in peace for all humanity. Uh, mankind is what they said. Not as Americans, not as this or that, but for all of humanity we come in peace. Profound. I heard a long interview with Michael Collins uh, about, about Apollo 11 and, and the whole Apollo series. You, you, you may or may not know who Michael Collins was. He was sort of the forgotten astronaut on Apollo 11, the third, the one who stayed in the ship that orbited the moon while the Aldrin and Armstrong walked on the surface. And Collins has developed a reputation for being able to state very poetically what all these um, journeys were like. And he, too, didn't talk as much about what the moon surface looked like, which is actually quite boring, but rather how every time that little uh, marble of the earth appeared in the window, how he watched it. And he, he said he was stood there or sat there just covering it with his thumb. Now think of that for a minute. Covering the entirety of the earth with your thumb. Everything that's ever happened, everything that's ever been written, every image that ever moved Shakespeare to speak, every landscape that moved Van Gogh to paint, every creature and every feature that made some people somewhere write a song right under his thumb. And every time he moved, he would see these just swatches of color that we call continents and oceans. And what rose up in them was this fundamental sense of our oneness. Now, that's inspirational unity, if ever I've heard of it. But there's another kind of unity, too, one that we don't talk about very much. You might call it a false unity, even a manipulative unity. Uh, I'll tell you a story, true story. It's, it's about a church, but it could have been about a family. You could easily make the translation to maybe your company or organization or your community or the country, or the world? Well, this particular church wasn't very unified. Uh, In fact, there was a lot of division from within, uh, for good reason, because there was a lot going on that wasn't right, that wasn't well. So division or disunity wasn't actually the problem. That was the symptom. That was the sign that something was wrong underneath. But rather than try to treat what was going on underneath the surface and listen and tend to the wounds that were there, there was this sort of overt, ill-conceived effort to just force unity on everybody, and that would make everything better. Well, you can imagine how that worked. In fact, there was one Sunday where they literally, the, the choir was told to surround the congregation. I mean, that's weird enough. And and lead them in a refrain that literally was just unity, unity. And everybody had to sing it over and over again. Uh, 
was really creepy. Because you can't force togetherness. You can't coerce community. It reminds me of what uh, Jeremiah said, the great prophet, one time. He said, you've treated the wounds of my people carelessly, crying, peace, peace. There's no peace. You've acted shamefully. Because by crying, peace, peace, or unity, unity, when real people have been hurt and real people have been wronged, you're actually just committing another wrong. You're inflicting another injury. Jeremiah calls that an abomination, crying out, peace, peace. Now, I have to say, that's a difficult word to hear as somebody who just likes everybody to get along, right? I don't know if any of you can relate to that. That's certainly where I reside most of the time. And churches often fall into that trap, the comfort trap. We just want everybody to be comfortable, which is really just superficially comfortable. But when some people have been hurt systematically or individually, well, then you're not really making everybody comfortable. You're just pushing down their hurts. And what Jeremiah is in touch with is the need for certain wrongs to be addressed, certain wounds to be acknowledged and to be healed. Jeremiah knows that we are called as people of God to be purveyors of true unity, of a just peace, of a righteous peace, of a holy peace, not a false peace. Jesus, like the prophets before him, had no time for false unity. Did you hear what he said today? Not a passage you teach kids a lot in Sunday school around here, I would guess. Do you think that I came to bring peace to the earth? Yes. No. Division. Division. Wow. If you read Matthew's telling of the story, it's even stronger. He says, I came to bring a sword. Now, that verse has gotten us in a whole lot of trouble over the years because people have taken it to be a license for all kinds of violence and warfare, and that's how it's been used. I think that's not a mature reading of the text. I think we're all sophisticated enough to recognize metaphor when it slaps us in the face, so to speak. Right? Jesus is speaking about the sharpness of his tongue and how truth pierces sometimes. And one of the things Jesus' truth pierces through is false unity. And at times in our world's history, we know there have been people who have dared to step apart and say things that are divisive because they need to be said in order to get everybody into a new place. Now, that's not to say everything divisive is also prophetic, right? The two aren't the same. But there have been these moments where people stepped out in a risky way and named something and cut through the moment. And later, when we've gotten it right, we've lauded them as heroes. But we forget how they were received at the time. I mean, just look at Jesus. That's how it ends for the prophets, almost always. And one of the things that Jesus did was he pierced right through False unity, the kind of unity that comes from the top down and gets imposed on people who are told to get in line. Empire unity, you could call it. That's always the dominant metaphor in the Older and the Newer Testaments. And Jesus calls it out for what it is, hypocrisy. Because it's not true unity when it's being forced on some people who have it far worse than other people. What Jesus preaches is not ultimately division, but it's division for the sake of seeing the true unity, which is recognizing the sacred and the divine gift in all, in everyone, and lifting that one up into a greater reality. Jesus was divisive. That said, division was not the goal, and we get that wrong too a lot as well. Division was a byproduct, a sad byproduct, you might say, a casualty, you might say. And we can miss that point because sometimes even we who are right <clears throat> uh, become more wedded to the battle 
and to defeating and annihilating the other than we are to actually getting everybody to a new place together. And so we, we, our, our, we lose our tone or we lose our tactic and we end up um, being right and destroying other people. But what good is it being right if everybody hates you when you're done and they have good reason to? There's a pastor and activist in North Carolina named Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove who does a lot of work on race. And he tells a wonderful story about two figures, Stanley Hauerwas and Jean Vanier. I've, I've mentioned both of them in, in here before, but Hauerwas is a professor of Christian ethics at Duke, and he is a fiery pacifist. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Known for his, I'll just say, colorful language. The dude can swear with the best of them, okay? If you've ever heard him speak, it's intense. And Jean Vanier is sort of the opposite. He's this gentle giant in every, uh, every sense of the word. He's best known for starting what's called the L'Arche Communities. These communities where people of vastly differing abilities, um, developmental and, and, and physical abilities, live together in intentional communities and homes all around the world. And he's this really gentle figure, giant of a man. Well, Wilson Hartgrove describes a time when the three of them were sitting around at his kitchen table at night, and Harawas was getting fired up about nonviolence and yelling, and, 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 and Vanye takes his giant hand, and he cups Harawas' face in it and says, it's okay, Stanley. It's okay. Now, what's so interesting about that moment is both of them agreed both of them were committed to the centrality of nonviolence in the Christian movement. But what Vanier was doing was uh, calling uh, Harawas's fire back home, lest it consume him and everyone in his path and cease to become nonviolent. And the truth is, we need both. We need the piercing tongue to maintain the truth of Harawas, of Jesus, of Jeremiah. And we need the gentle hands of Vanier to maintain the relationship. Or otherwise, it's all for naught if we don't get there together. The passage from Hebrews tells of our ancestors getting there, getting to this place of freedom and they have to do it, wouldn't you know, through this archetypal image of going through the Red Sea, which was divided. In their holy act of differentiation, separating themselves from false unity, from empire, from Pharaoh, from slavery. They had to step out when it was tempting to stay back and have your three square a day and your place to sleep and being told what to do. They had to take a risk and step out and stand apart and leave that behind. And you heard the awful things people endured as part of that journey, which continues, you might say, even to today. Stoning, torture, ridicule, all kinds of suffering. Why? Because they valued their integrity more than their own comfort. And they risked being divisive to do what is right. That's a powerful image, this notion of standing apart. And it's risky. And all of us have very good reasons to not do it because we've all got responsibilities, families to take care of and bills to pay and jobs to keep. But sometimes you have to risk that. And Hebrews doesn't promise us any easy answers. Hebrews doesn't promise us it's going to feel good all the time. What Hebrews says is you don't walk alone. You have all these companions, the ones you see, and all these invisible ones that belong to this great cloud of witnesses. And because of them, you will run the race that is set before you, which is not always the race you want to run. I went on a run recently that I wouldn't have chosen again, a literal one, not metaphorical. We were on vacation, and I was out on this trail running to meet my family on the beach, and I came to this place where these two paved um, paths converged and I saw one biker go by and I saw the other one coming and I said, oh, I can just quickly get across that lane and get in front of me. Why are you laughing? <laughs> when I said quickly, you started laughing. 
And, I, and I'll just get going that way, and then he'll just go right around me. And I was half right. I got across the lane and in front of him, and then two steps in, and I was flying. And that was not a spiritual flying. That was literal flying. Then I was sliding on the asphalt, and his spindle or his chain carved up my leg, and it was, it was, it was really nasty. And uh, um, so we brushed ourselves off. Nothing was broken and kind of sent each other on the way. But I'm still like a, a mile and a half away from beach where they are, so I've got adrenaline, so that's fine. I'll start running, blood dripping everywhere. Uh, nobody stopped, by the way, cars passing by. Uh, but I get there, and um, I go up to the lifeguard stand to get kind of cleaned up, just get the, the dirt out and so forth. And I'm talking to the lifeguard, and I said, so how long should I wait before I get in the ocean? Because I've been dying to swim this whole time, right? And he said, well, look, everybody's worried about the flesh-eating bacteria, but I've been getting in... <laughs> said, I have cuts and scrapes, and I get in all the time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, so, you know, maybe a day. Did you say flesh-eating bacteria? And, and he, he said, well, cause it, but it, you're probably not going to get it. And, and I said, oh, okay. Uh, so, like if, you get, like, if something gets a little red, I should just go in, and they'll give me some medicine and just kind of clear it up. And he said, no, 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 there's nothing they can do for it. They'll just cut your hand off. And I'm thinking, I've got a cut on this hand and on this one. And on each of my legs. So the odds are not good at this point. So two thoughts come to mind. Uh, One, you're not going in the ocean. And two, don't tell your wife. Uh, But of course, I did tell my wife. And what I didn't tell you is I'd already rinsed off in the ocean. Uh, And then I made the mistake of going onto Google. And the stories are horrendous. So anyway, I'm fine uh, as far as I know. Uh, I did not go in the ocean. But I tell you that story, not just for comic relief but to recall for you and for me the look on the guy's face who hit me. He was a teenager. And once he got off the ground and reached over to help me up, his eyes were big as saucers. Because to state the obvious, most people don't want to hurt you. And we forget that too. Because we're told in so many forms, sometimes explicit, but often implicit, that they're here to hurt you. That people want your harm. They don't want what's best for you. They're here to take what's yours or somehow hurt you and scare you. But it's not true. He looked at me like, oh my God, I'm afraid I hurt you. Which is how most people look at other people people. And we have to remember that, particularly when we take that bold step of standing apart to go against the flow and say, this is wrong. Because when you do it, you're not just trying to be right. You're trying to get everybody to move in a different direction. And that will work far better if you assume most of them also want what's best, even if some of them are off base in the way they manifest. That's what we have to remember sometimes when we step out in that manner. I was uh, thinking of all this as I returned to reflecting on these fantastic missions to the moon and beyond and how the fundamental truth of all of it is We all share this little marble. And if we're going to do it, we have to do it together. So there isn't getting over the other. It's only getting all on board together. During the coverage of this Apollo 11 uh, mission, one of the shows reached back into the Apollo 8 journeys. And you know Apollo 8 probably. That was the first time we left the Earth's orbit to just go around the moon and come back, leaving the gravitational pull of the Earth for the first time. Imagine that as a mission with people on it. And the astronauts were told uh, that there'd be a moment where they were going to be put on live TV in Apollo 8, and that they, should, they would have the largest audience of television viewing history, and so they should say something appropriate. No pressure. Uh, and this is what they said. We're now approaching the lunar sunrise. And for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the Earth. 
and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light and God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness and on they went one astronaut after another reading from the Genesis poem. Now the person charged with communicating between the ground control and Apollo 8 was Michael Collins. And Collins was interviewed and and he said, you know, I missed a moment to say something poetic, something profound, because I was the one who got to give the command to fire what's called the lunar thrust injectors or lunar thrust injection, which basically meant hit the gas to leave their Earth's orbit and go for the moon. That was the moment. And he said, I kind of flubbed it because all I said was, Apollo 8, you're go for LTI, lunar thrust injection. And he said, and then they really rose to the occasion. They said something like, Roger, LTI. (laughs) Like, here was this moment. And so a month later, the same interviewer said, if you could recall that moment, what would you say? And Colin stopped and thought, and he said, well, I would follow NASA's usual commands, which is keep, keep it to chunks of eight words or less, preferably monosyllabic, And I think I would say, Apollo 8, the moon is yours. Go. Seven words. One for every day of creation. Sometimes, in order to give the rest of the world a different perspective on things, you need to step out. You need to venture out and leave the safe gravitational pull of home and your comfort zone. It's scary. It's risky. You may not make it. But if you do, the view is out of this world. Amen.
Amen. You may be seated. I want to highlight just a couple of things coming up, uh, and I encourage you to take a look at the bulletin for other information. First, something not in the bulletin, our playground has a special sealant that just got put on on the asphalt, um, so we're, we've been asked to not walk on the playground today, so especially if you have young kids, I know it's fun to play out there, but just for today, the playground is closed. It will be back in action next week. Um, Rob teaches a Bible study every first and third Tuesdays. It's been on a break for the summer, but the summer is now ending. So that Bible study will be back in action this Tuesday. Um, If you haven't yet had a chance to check it out, I encourage you to do so. It's a study on the book of Mark. It'll be at six o'clock in the library. Um, And finally, uh, especially as we're preparing and then undergoing our renovation and much of our building will be unavailable, we're going to be looking for new and creative ways to be together in community with each other. So we're starting a little early this next Sunday. We're going to go to the Pacifics game in San Rafael. It's their last home game of the season, so it's your last chance to see them. Um, We're encouraging you to buy your tickets on your own, and then we'll just find a spot to sit together next Sunday. I believe the game starts at 1, but if you have questions or want more information, see Rob or myself about that. Now we're going to stand, as you are comfortable, for the closing hymn. We're going to sing verses 1 and 2 of number 846. As you go from this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God who is Father and Mother of us all, in the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit, be with you this day and every day. Amen.